Our reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's sons, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It is written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him to the holy city and stood him on the highest point of the temple. And he said to him, Since you are God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot against a stone. Jesus replied, Again, it is written, Don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil brought him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said, I will give all of these to you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, go away, Satan, because it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil left him and the angels came and took care of him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So over the next seven weeks, we're going we're gonna to spend some time in, in some texts um, that will help us, I think, and I hope, to understand and answer the question of why, why we practice Lent. So the, the Lent season is the seven weeks um, leading up to Easter. Uh, traditionally in the church, the, the Lenten season um, started off as a time for those um, who were going to become Christians to be baptized in Easter, um, a time of preparation for them as they made preparations to fully join the church. If you want to know how seriously that the church, uh, the early church, took baptism and entry into the church universal, seven weeks of preparation at least. Um, and during that time, the people would, would pray, they would fast, they would uh, read, they would learn about the church. And this comes after year, years, perhaps, of participation in a local body. So it was that seven weeks of, of kind of final preparation before baptism on Easter Sunday. Uh, later on, it, it became um, a practice of the church that if someone um, was caught in egregious sin and either excommunicated or kind of put on notice in the church... Uh, the seven weeks prior to Easter, the Lenten season, was a time for them to pray, to fast, and to prepare to re-enter the fellowship. Again, if you want to know how seriously the early church took sin, there you go. In the intervening years, it has become more of a church-wide, uh, celebration's the wrong word, but, but time of preparation for us to receive anew. Uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? If, uh, you know, Christmas is a great time, um, but really the central holiday of the church is the resurrection. For it, it, it guarantees everything that Jesus said. The death and resurrection of Jesus is what the church is about, and it is why we are here. And so it's become a season of preparation, um, sometimes through prayer, sometimes through fasting, um, but a time of, of real preparation and allowing God to search our hearts and our minds that God might expose sin, that we might confess, and that we might be ready to receive anew. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a silly analogy, but I, I compare it to an, you know, your semi-annual teeth cleaning. I'm assuming most of you brush your teeth once or twice a day. I still go in, even though I brush twice a day and floss once a day. Yes, I floss once a day. 
I still go in for my checkup to get the deep cleaning. I, I think of Lent as a deep cleaning for my soul. Not that I'm not confessing the rest of the year, but it's a time for me to focus in on what it means to be a follower of Christ and to focus in on whether or not I am truly living up to that which I have committed to Christ to. Um, and so over the next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about that in various ways and, and hopefully answering the question of why. Why would we do this? Why is this important for us? And so we start today, perhaps appropriately, at Jesus' baptism. Now, the text I read didn't mention Jesus' baptism, but everything that happens in our text today happens immediately following Jesus' baptism. So, so let me set the stage for you, if I can. Jesus goes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. Right? He goes because he believes that this is what he needs to do, that it will fulfill all righteousness, as he tells John. I have to do this, he says. And, and, and though the, 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 the three gospels that record this record it all a little bit differently, what essentially happens at Jesus' baptism is that Jesus is dunked under the water. He comes up, and there is a cloud and Mark says that the heavens were ripped open, not like, not just kind of like open like a nice bay door, but like ripped. Like there's a tearing open of the heavens and the spirit comes down in form like a dove and alights on Jesus. And we hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. Or in, in other, again, gospels recorded differently. One is this is my son or another one directly to Jesus. You are my son. Right, so, so if you're Jesus, let's just, let's just think about this from Jesus' perspective for the moment. He's there at baptism, and he has had all the signs of a, a God showing up, but he's had this sign where God says, you are my son, or this is my son. With him, I am well pleased. Elsewhere, it says, listen to him. Right, so Jesus has this, this confirmation of the, of the literal voice of God coming from the heavens and the spirit in the form of a dove literally alighting on him to say that he is the son of God. And, and in this case, Messiah, one chosen by God, one, one who was anointed by God to do the work of God, to do a very special work of God in the world. Right, this is where, it's not where Jesus becomes Messiah, but this is where we finally see. Like this, this is God saying, yes, this is the one. And immediately following that, immediately following all of this, the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Mark says the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. Mark is short, sweet to the point, and I love his language. Jesus is kind of on that right now, sort of in the Jordan River Valley, and, and he is driven east into the wilderness. Right? The wilderness of Judea looks something like this. Well, it looks exactly like this. This is Judea. He's driven into the wilderness. It's a stark place. It's a dry place. It's a relatively empty place. The wilderness. It is harsh. But of course, those of us who are familiar with the scriptures know that the wilderness is not just simply like Jesus went into the desert as if like I went to the Sahara, right? The wilderness in the story of the people of God plays central role, right? We know that when the people of God came out of Egypt and, and, and settled at, at, at Sinai and God gave them the, the covenant and, and, and led them through the wilderness 
to probably fairly close to where Jesus was baptized, at the Jordan River, somewhere near Jericho. And, and the people spent 40 years in the wilderness as a time of, of, of preparation, as a time of, of God forming in them what it meant to be a people to inhabit the land. So the wilderness for, for us, for those who are students of the scriptures, for those of us who read this, it is, it is not just sort of a neutral symbol. It is a place of preparation, a place of testing as it was for the people of Israel, a place where, the, where God reveals God's self to the people of Israel. It's in the wilderness of Sinai that God comes on the mountain. It's the wilderness at, at Horeb or Sinai where God reveals God's self to, to Elijah. It's in the wilderness at a burning bush that, that God reveals God's self to Moses, right? So the, the, the wilderness has, has huge literary and historical and theological implications for the people of God. So it is not neutral that Jesus goes into the wilderness. We're not sure what where Jesus stayed in the wilderness. It's a pretty foreboding place. This is Qumran. It was a community that would have been around that around when Jesus was, was alive. This is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jesus could have gone there, hung out at Qumran for a while, but maybe, maybe not. It's also possible Jesus went to a place like this, places like this. This is Ein Gedi, which is also in the wilderness of Judea, kind of right off the, the, the Dead Sea. Right? A, a beautiful place. In my mind, as Jesus is in the wilderness, he's not just sitting in the middle of the desert, right? He's sitting by, a, by an oasis somewhere where he has water, at least. But what we're told is that Jesus spends 40 days fasting. That's a long time to go without food. A priest in Africa actually just this year died because he tried to emulate this fast. It's a long time, but 40 is, again, not a neutral term. It's not like, you know, the gospel writers picked this number out of the air and said, oh, 40 is a good long time. It's a little more than a month. 40 years in the wilderness for the people of God. 40 days fasting. Again, not neutral terms. These are loaded. We're supposed to be seeing something going on here, that Jesus is engaging in an intentional and intense time of preparation and we know, as the gospel writer Matthew has told us, that it is also a time of testing and tempting by the devil. And so after 40 days, Jesus is hungry. I think that goes without saying. Jesus is extremely hungry, which sort of sets the stage for some of the stuff that is to come. But I, I don't think we should read hungry for weak here. Part of the point of fasting within the history of the people of God and of Israel is that it's a time of drawing close to God, preparing and actually gathering strength for the trials, the temptations, for the testing that is to come. So Jesus is hungry, but again, I don't think we should mistake that for weak. And so the devil shows up. I don't know what the devil looks like. I don't see him as, as a pitchfork guy. I, I see him just as a sharp-dressed man, apparently. I think if the devil's to be tempting to Jesus, if this is truly a temptation, he's not going to show up in a guise that's easy to say no to. So the devil shows up and begins the temptation. Now, now most of us are familiar with this passage. If we're familiar with the Gospels, familiar with, with the story of Jesus, we, we know generally what's going on here, but, but we'll walk through it again. 
So we know that the first thing that happens is, is Jesus is out there in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's hungry. And so the devil picks some low-hanging fruit, right? Surely Jesus is hungry. And so the devil comes and he says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Just to note something here. The devil says, if you're the son of God, do this. What is the voice just said? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so the devil picks at him in this way and says, well, you just heard that you're God's son. And if that's true, you have power, you have authority. So if you're God's son, see those rocks over there? Turn them into loaves of bread. The rocks in in the wilderness of Judea are awfully loaf-like and they look like bread. Again, low-hanging fruit. In in my mind, Jesus has spent 40 days. He looks at him and, you know, you see those cartoon dream sequences where, you know, like somebody looks at a chicken and all of a sudden it becomes a cooked turkey, right? Or a cooked chicken and they're hungry. That's how I imagine Jesus in the wilderness. I think Jesus was like us. He got hungry and he imagined food when he got hungry. And so the devil says, hey, if you're truly who they say they are, you are. If you really believe you are God's son, or the, 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 the version we read today kind of is like, so you're God's son, right? God's powerful. God feeds. God doesn't want you to starve. If you're God's son, show your power, feed yourself. Turn these stones into bread. Good question is always, was that something Jesus could do? I would say yes. I mean, we don't have anything specifically about Jesus turning stones into bread, but he took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. Could he do it? Yeah. Will he do it later? Yeah. But the devil is crafty. And so basically, this is a prove it question. You're God's son, prove it. Use that power to feed yourself. Show yourself to be self-sufficient. What, what's interesting here and, and what's interesting about the life of Jesus is, is this, this divine paradox that, that we confess that Jesus was God and yet Jesus humbled himself and submitted himself to God. Paul says that he emptied himself and became nothing. So what the devil is doing is basically take advantage of your divine status and do what we all know you can do and feed yourself. What's the harm in that? God doesn't want us to starve. I don't think I don't, I mean, I think you would all agree with me on that, right? The devil's kind of like, it's in a God doesn't want you to starve. Just do it. It's in your power. What's the harm? I have to believe that if these are real temptations, Jesus was tempted. It's something that would be tempting, that would, that, would, that would not cause like a whole like existential crisis. But in the moment, I have to wonder if Jesus said, what is the harm? What would be the harm in that? But Jesus has submitted himself. He spent 40 days submitting himself, humbling himself before God. I have to imagine listening to God, praying to God, asking for God's guidance and direction. God, how am I to proceed? So in my mind, what has happened is Jesus has submitted himself to God. And in that moment, God says, you don't live on bread alone. We know that this is a quote from scripture. 
But again, it's not innocuous. It's not neutral. It's not that Jesus kind of picks out one of the good ones. But the quote comes from Deuteronomy. And the people in the wilderness, it's all connected, see. Jesus tempted 40 days fasting in the wilderness. The people of God tempted, tested, tried, prepared in the wilderness. In fact, God, in in that passage, in Deuteronomy 8, he says to the people, I fed you manna in the wilderness so that you might know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil says, hey, if you're God's son, take advantage of that status, feed yourself. Seems innocuous. Jesus says, I am unwilling to do that for God will provide. God will take care. Or God has not told me to do that, right? He has submitted himself to the will and to the way of God. And he will not take orders from his stomach or from the devil. He believes God will sustain me. If he is the son of God, he might be thinking, God will sustain me. God will provide. And this is not the way God has done it. And so he responds to the devil. Man does not live on bread alone. You know what it says. Put on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Test one, done. But we're not over. The next thing is the devil takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple. I'd like to think it's on top of this building right here. And he says, you can quote scripture, so can I. (laughs) Saying, if you're the son of God, or as our translation put it, so you're the son of God, prove it. Just toss yourself off this pinnacle. Because you know it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and you will not strike your foot against stone. The devil is good. (laughs) So what's going on here? Tempting. You say you're God's son, prove it. Test God in this. God has said, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Well, if that's true, you can throw yourself off. God won't let any harm come to you, right? God has a mission for you. You can be as crazy as you want. You can hurl yourself off temples and God won't let anything happen to you until God's mission is done, right? Or we could look at it another way. If this is the temple... If this isn't just sort of a vision that Jesus is having, if this is some sort of transportation and they're there, they're on top of the pinnacle of the temple, the, the, the crowds are down beneath, the worshipers are there, and the devil says, hey, you're the God's son. Now's a great time to show everyone down there. You fall and go splat, no one worships you. You fall and God sends his angels concerning you and they lift you up so that you might not strike your foot against stone, then they'll believe. Show him what it means to be God's son. God said he'll protect you. Why don't you test him? Pretty good temptation if you ask me. You trust in God? Prove it. <laughs> right? Jesus just said, I, I trust God to feed me. So the devil says, trust God to save you. Jesus, again, goes back to the wilderness, to Deuteronomy. To to the people of God who who grumbled and complained and said, we want to go back to Egypt because God brought us out here to kill us. But they are warned, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa and Meribah. 
where they grumbled after water. Jesus says, God does protect, God does care. But that doesn't mean I can just throw myself off a temple. We don't test God's provident care in that way. That, that is wanton, that is superfluous, that is frivolous, that is vain. That, that, is, that is asking God to prove something to me just to prove it. You shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Does it mean Jesus believed God wouldn't save him? I don't think so at all, right? And I think it means that God says, I know, or Jesus says, I know, I believe God will save me. I won't die until the appointed time. I don't need God to prove it to me. And I certainly don't need to prove it to anyone else. God will, in God's time, in God's way. Notice in these two questions, in these two temptations, the operative question has been, and the first statement has been, if you are truly God's son, prove it. If you are truly the people of God, prove it. You say God cares for you, prove it. Make God prove it. The question is not whether Jesus is God's son, it's what kind of son will Jesus be? He has gone to the wilderness to prepare. He has gone to the wilderness out of submission to the will and to the way of God. You might say, as as the author of the Proverbs says, right, there is a way that seems right to us, but in the end it leads to death. So, So Jesus has gone to the wilderness to say, not my will, but your will. Does that sound familiar? There's another temptation coming up. It's much later, though. So for the third temptation, the devil takes a different tactic takes Jesus up to the top of a high mountain. And it says he shows him all the kingdoms in the world. Now, I don't know how long this takes. I don't know how long it went. I don't know what it looked like. But in my mind, again, in my mind, what the devil does is shows all the kingdoms of all the world for all time. Right? Not not just, you know, the kingdoms that, that Jesus would have been known about at this time or the people would have known about it in that time. Right? Not, not just Rome, not just, not just Israel. Not just Egypt, but all the kingdoms. I think of all the kingdoms that have been and all the kingdoms that will be after Jesus. That's why I put the White House up there. Shows him all of that, all of history, and says, Guess what, Jesus? All that can be yours. You can have dominion, power, and authority over all these kingdoms. Just one thing you need to do. Bow down and worship me. Now, two things going on here. One, of course, most of us are saying, well, those things don't belong to the devil. They may have given themselves to the devil, but they don't belong to him. But the other thing going on is, is for those of us who know the story, we know how it ends for Jesus. We know that for Jesus to be enthroned, in the will and the way of God comes through a cross. He is first rejected by his people, the very ones he came to save, right? The light has shined in the darkness. The darkness had not overcome it, but the darkness did not recognize him. Those who walk in darkness wanted to stay in darkness. Jesus is rejected by his own. Jesus is accused 
for crimes he did not commit. At least in Israel. They accused him of blasphemy. He didn't blaspheme. He said truth about who he was and what he was to do. And he was crucified because he was handed over by the people for claiming to be king over Caesar. Well, that was true. He was crucified. Crucifixion is a particularly painful and heinous way to die. Right? I, I don't need to rehash it. We'll, almost seven weeks from now, we'll talk about it on Good Friday. But Jesus will be abused and tortured and ultimately killed in a slow and agonizing death. Not despite the fact he was God's son, but because of it. One of the interesting features of the Gospel of John is one of the last things that happens, some Greeks come up to Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. And this is my paraphrase. But ultimately what happens out of that is Jesus responds, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. The very next thing that happens is he is crucified. We hear Jesus say, this little hint for next week, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He is lifted up not on a throne in Israel or in Rome. He's lifted up on the cross. The cross is Jesus' glory. The cross is Jesus' path as the Son of God. And the devil has said, you can have all the authority in the world. You can have all of that. You can be king without the pain. All you have to do is bow down to me. Jesus has offered the path to power and influence through some less than stellar means. What the devil has offered him is a means justify the ends scenario. I mean, after all, Jesus could say, sure, I'll do that. Jesus could say, power and authority, I can rule rightly. All I have to do is worship this guy. I can do that and still rule well. Right? The temptation is to say, all the glory without the pain. That's, for me, the most tempting one. All the glory without the struggle. The power and authority without the pain. Just have to subvert the will of God a little bit. Or maybe God's making, maybe that's, maybe that's God's little invitation. Surely the greater good justifies the less than stellar means. This one, Jesus does not just dismiss with a little scripture. This one, he doesn't say, no, I'm not up for that. This one, he's a little more forceful, right? He responds, away from me, Satan, tempter, accuser. For it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. For Jesus, there is no distinction between the means and the ends, for the means are the ends, especially if the means involve going counter to the will and the way of God. Jesus knows 
that the devil may have proximate authority, but he does not have universal authority. Jesus knows that the, the kingdoms of the world may have sold themselves to the devil for power, for authority, all the things that the devil is offering Jesus. But Jesus knows that ultimate authority belongs to Yahweh and to God alone. And that to truly have the authority as son of God, he must go through the things that God has planned, has offered, has proposed, that he knows must happen. Perhaps even deeper than that is that the authority and power and dominion that belongs to God looks so much different than the power and dominion and authority that the kingdoms of this world wield. Right, right, to be king means to be able to dictate how the people act, or at least the laws by which they act anyway, right? If the right person is king, they will rule rightly. Things will be good because they can enforce the will, the will of God or whatever. If just the right people are elected to positions of power, then things will be all right because... But the story of Jesus doesn't run that way. If, if you know, I hope you notice. Jesus' glory, Jesus' enthronement doesn't come as he achieves political power, as he sits on the throne in, in Jerusalem or in Rome or wherever else. The story of the gospel is not Jesus sitting there commanding other people what to do and, and dictating what they do. The story of the gospel is Jesus submitting himself to the worst that humanity has to offer, death on a cross, to demonstrate the love of God, that God has offered God's own self to the people of this world. Not primarily for dominion, but for love. It's not because God is king, right? That, that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him, the son would rule over forever and ever. The, the, Right? What does Jesus say? For God so loved the world that God created. The dominion of this world is not in question in my book, right? It's God. God doesn't need to establish that. God, it is. God has created this. It is his. But God offers God's self to us because God wants relationship with that which God has created. With you, with me. Everybody in this room, with everybody in this world, God desires relationships. It's love that drives God and love which drives Jesus, not the will to power, not the ability to tell other people what to do. It didn't need to be granted that. It's already God's. But God demonstrates God's love in us for this, that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. It is not on a throne that Jesus will be glorified. It's on a cross. For we are told, at least in the rest of the New Testament, that this is the symbol of God's glory and rule. Now we have stories at the end that say God will establish and show God's authority later on. But even that story asserts throughout the whole thing that God is already God. 
God is already in control. God is already dominion, has dominion. But the scope of God's interaction with humanity has been the scope of a God offering God's own self to the world in love with an invitation to relationship and to follow. When Jesus says, away from me, Satan, we're told that Satan listens. It says that Satan goes away, leaves Jesus alone. Sometimes it's said that the devil leaves for a more opportune time, and that will come. Jesus is left alone and attended to by the angels, it says. So, so just think about this, right? He's offered, make these stones into bread, and he says, no, I won't. God will provide, right? We don't live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. So after the temptation is over, what's the first thing that happened? God provides food. It says angels attended. It basically serves, right? The server, server language. Now, I don't know if it's that Jesus is sleeping and like Elijah, you know, the, the angel leaves him a cup of water and some bread and says, have a meal and a nap. I don't know if that's what happens. Or if it's more like this, right? He's got the angels and they're like, happy to serve. What can we do for you? The buffet's open. I, I don't know. My mind go, my mind's like a squirrel sometimes, kind of in between those two things. But it says after Jesus has just submitted himself fully and completely to the will, to the way, and the provident care of God. In this moment, Jesus has, has fully kind of enacted that kenosis, that, that emptying of himself and not taking advantage of, of, his, of his divine status, but says, I will submit to the will and the way of God. I will only use power as God asks, as God directs, as God divines. Jesus is ministered to. And the devil leaves for a more opportune time. In, in my opinion, this, this is the more opportune time that the devil leaves for. As Jesus is in the garden. For, for truly, that's a temptation. As the people yell up at him, right? If you're the son of God, come down. Why doesn't he save himself? If he is truly God's son, why doesn't God rescue him, right? That's the temptation that he has been dealing with this whole time. It's not the last temptation that Jesus will have. His life is full of opportunities to pursue power over submission to the will and the way of God. And if you ask me, I think that's our temptation too. I mean, all of these are sort of temptations for us, right? If you really are the people of God, prove it. Right, prove it. Why doesn't God feed you? Why doesn't God make you all rich? Make God prove it. If God really loves you, why would God let you suffer or die? So, so part of our temptations is to, is to wonder and, and, and to listen to those voices that say, God doesn't really care. God won't really provide. You must do for yourselves. Believe it or not, it's Ben Franklin, not Proverbs. It says, God helps those who help themselves. But that is our temptation to help ourselves at the expense of our submission to God. But for me, what I see most in the church and in our world, it is this idea that we have to have power and authority in the, all the spheres that, that, that we think are most important. 
right? If only we can get into the right positions of power, if only we can make the laws, if only we can do these or that or the other thing, then things will be right and good. And I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying don't be involved in, in helping to make this world by the means that we have a better place for all who are in it. But far too often, our will to power has led us, I think, to make deals with the devil. And I think that is our great temptation. To say our mean, the means justify the ends. If we can just get good ends, the means don't matter as much. But, but my reading of, of the scriptures, my reading of the New Testament and the gospel say that the means matter. In fact, my reading of the, means, the, the New Testament says the means are the ends. For the means are what we control. The ends are God's. Does Jesus say, go and be powerful and make laws? What does Jesus call us to? Follow me is what Jesus says. Again, please don't hear that I'm saying you shouldn't be involved in those things or that somehow those things just take care of themselves and we should just, just remove ourselves from everything. Some would say that I am not. I don't think that's the answer. But I don't believe God's kingdom will come by means of any kingdom on earth. I think the gospels are fairly clear on that. The end of the story, the book of Revelation, says that over and over and over again, we've tried that and it hasn't worked. And it won't work. Our job as the church is the means to follow Jesus in the path of discipleship. To submit ourselves to the will and to the way of God, even when it's illogical to us. There is a logic that is produced by the cross of Jesus Christ. But Paul will say, It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The author of the Proverbs will say, there is a way that seems right to us, but in the end it leads to death. What we are encouraged as the people of God is to follow Jesus along the path of discipleship, of submission to God, following his means and saying, God, the ends are up to you. Which means if we're in politics to pursue the will of God as much as we can in that way. But not think that we can somehow secure God's kingdom on our own. Because legislation is not the kingdom of God. It may, it may be good, but it's not, the, that's not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is the people of God now, at least, living in the ways that God has called us to. Love, mercy, kindness, justice, compassion. Following the ways that God has commanded us to live, doing the things he has told us to do, abstaining from the things he has told us to abstain from, and following his way. Being the best politicians we can be in that respect, disciples first, vocation second. It even extends to us pastors 
In this church, Sheldon and I, we are disciples first and pastors second. It may seem an odd distinction to make, but it's not. For when the demands of discipleship override the demands of pastoral work, I hope that I will choose discipleship every time. And so it doesn't matter our vocation. We are disciples first. Our first allegiance and submission is to Christ. So it brings me back to the question, why Lent? Why Lent? Why Lent? Because this isn't always the way I think. I mean, the ways of Jesus are not natural to us. Right? We are people who are born and, and created in the image of God, but that, that image has become cracked and corrupted as we have, as we have turned to other lights. And so we are often fooled by what is out there or by what is going on in here, the things that aren't submitted to Christ. So why do I need to take seven weeks before Easter? When I say that I I believe the spirit is filled, I I believe that I'm a follower of Jesus. Why do we need to confess? Because the heart is deceitful above all else. And on my own, I am not great at seeing particularly my faults at least the ones that matter. I see lots of faults in myself, but rarely are the ones that that, that God cares most about. I need the spirit to search me and to try me. And I don't think I'm overstating it when I say so to you. We need the spirit to search us and to try us and to reveal any wicked way that is in us, that that God might lead us on the way to life. Why do we do it in community? Because I'm blind to a lot of my faults, but you all aren't. (laughs) You you guys see faults that I have that I don't see. That's why I need you. And I don't think I'm overstating it to say the opposite is often true. We see faults in one another that we don't see in ourselves. Now, oftentimes we don't focus on the right faults that we see in other people. <laughs> That's why we need the Spirit and Jesus to lead us and guide us. Why do, we, why do we talk about fasting in this way, submitting to God? Because we need to submit to God. The, the purpose of fasting is not to deny yourselves. Believe it or not. The purpose we call the fast is, is not so we can say, oh, I'm not eating, woe is me. Or I'm not eating, how holy am I? It's so that in those moments that we are doing those things, that our minds are drawn to Jesus. We are, we're taking something out in order that we might fill it with Jesus. So that we might be reminded that we don't live on bread alone. And every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are called not to power as the church. We are called to follow. And sometimes we are follow Jesus and God brings us into places of at least earthly power. And in Christ, by the, by the spirit, we have power that, that is unimaginable. But it's not the kind of power that just wills over other people and tells them what to do. In Christ, we are called to follow.
And like it or not, the place that we follow Jesus is to the cross. At least in the near term. We follow Jesus to the cross. For God demonstrates God's love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I've already said. If that's how God demonstrates God's love for the world, how are we to demonstrate God's love for the world? It's not primarily by telling them what to do. It's by following Jesus in the way of love. It is, yes, sometimes speaking the truth in love. But ultimately, this is where we follow Jesus to. This is not the end for for him or for us. But the way to Christ's glory led through the cross. And servants are not greater than their master. And we should not expect anything better. We follow Jesus by giving of ourselves in love and in care. By giving up our own rights for the sake of others. This is not good power talk, I know. But as far as I can tell, this is the way of discipleship. Why Lent? Because there is cost to following Jesus. It is a commitment to having our minds and our bodies formed in different ways. Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means following not the logic that we have been taught, might makes right, means justify ends, by following the logic of the cross of a crucified Messiah. Sometimes a stumbling block to others and foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, Paul says, it's the very wisdom and power of God. Why Lent? Because we need God to transform us. And we can't do it on our own. It is not by our own will or by our own power, but by the Spirit of God that is in us. And so we take these 40 days to listen, to ask God to reveal any wicked way that is in us. In so doing, we confess the wrongs that we have done and the things that we have neglected to do, that God might form us more deeply, more completely, and more faithfully as God's own people. As we close, We're going to sing the last song. And I would encourage you to take the time during this song. Sure, sing along. That's fine. But to ask God to search you and try you. To reveal any way that is not in, that not consistent. That that, that God would empower you to overcome the temptations that are so common to us to assert our will over others, to to take shortcuts to, to what we think are good ends. Pray that God would enable us by his spirit to 
faithfully follow Jesus all the way to the cross with the assurance that if we are united with him in his death, so too we will be united with him in his resurrection and newness of life.